when John and Kim and I decided quite a long time ago that we were going to do a series on fragmentation and disconnection, um, we had no idea that this particular Sunday and this particular message was going to fall when it did. Because what we're going to talk about today is environmental concerns. It's fascinating to me as I watched the news this week and was on the internet and following things and watching Greta Thunberg's uh, speeches and leading the protests in Montreal that in the providence of God we are talking about this both in here and in Sunday school on the youth group today at a time when this is really relevant for our culture. And one of the reasons I think Greta Thunberg and some other uh, young people who protested on Friday, maybe some in this room, uh, one of the reasons they're protesting is not just about uh, climate change, but what they're actually protesting is the disconnect for politicians on this issue. That so many politicians seem to not take this seriously, and people in my generation uh, see this as sort of a luxury issue and not actually a key and core issue for our culture. And so these young people that marched on Friday, whatever their political aspirations may be, they see a disconnect between what politicians do and say and the concerns of the environmental movement. What I want to do today is make a very simple point. It's going to take about almost half an hour to make it. I'm two minutes in, so about 28 more minutes. I want to make a very simple point, and the simple point is this. I think many Christians are disconnected from environmental concerns. Many Christians, not all, not everyone, but many Christians are disconnected, and particularly if they live in the United States, because the issue has become so politicized that in order to be for the environment, you must be for a political party, and if you're against the environment, you're for another political party. And so it's got so politicized that people push it to the side. And many Christians, and dare I say it, many evangelical Christians have no clue what environmental issues have to do with their Christian faith. And this is a travesty. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to explore that issue. Under the title, what do prayer and church have to do with Siberian tigers and climate change? That's the question of the day. What do prayer and church have to do with Siberian tigers and climate change? And in a moment, after we've watched two very short videos, one on climate change, one on the extinction of Siberian tigers, we're going to, uh, I want to give you an opportunity just to grapple with that question briefly with your neighbor. Now, some of you, uh, church is a funny thing these days, right? When we have the, you know, meet out in the foyer and have food, you know, 50% go, I love this, and 50% go, I hate this. And when we do small groups and we have little discussions, 50% go, I love talking to my neighbor, and the other 50% go, I don't want to talk to my neighbor. So it's kind of a, if this wasn't church, I'd say, Dan, if you do, damned if you don't, but because it's church, I'll just say some people like things, some people don't like things, right? So if, if you're a person, and I say this genuinely, I don't mean it humorously, when we do have a brief discussion, it'll just be a few minutes, with your neighbor, if you're not comfortable doing that, or you don't like the neighbor you're sitting beside, um, or you would assume, just assume not to discuss it out loud, you want to meditate yourself, just do that, okay? No one's going to point you out, no one's going to call you out, so if you don't want to have a discussion with your neighbor, that's fine, we won't see you as a bad person or unspiritual or whatever, okay? So, we're going to watch two videos, first climate change, then the extinction of Siberian tigers, and the question is, what does prayer and church, what do prayer and church have to do with the extinction of Siberian tigers? and climate change. 
Human activities, from pollution to overpopulation, are driving up the Earth's temperature and fundamentally changing the world around us. The main cause is a phenomenon known as the greenhouse effect. Gases in the atmosphere, such as water vapor, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and chlorofluorocarbons, let the sun's light in, but keep some of the heat from escaping, like the glass walls of a greenhouse. The more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the more heat gets trapped, strengthening the greenhouse effect and increasing the Earth's temperature. Human activities, like the burning of fossil fuels, have increased the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere by more than a third since the Industrial Revolution. The rapid increase in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere has warmed the planet at an alarming rate. While Earth's climate has fluctuated in the past, atmospheric carbon dioxide hasn't reached today's levels in hundreds of thousands of years. Climate change has consequences for our oceans, our weather, our food sources, and our health. Ice sheets, such as Greenland and Antarctica, are melting. The extra water that was once held in glaciers causes sea levels to rise and spills out of the oceans, flooding coastal regions. Warmer temperatures also make weather more extreme. This means not only more intense major storms, floods, and heavy snowfall, but also longer and more frequent droughts. These changes in weather pose challenges. Growing crops becomes more difficult. The areas where plants and animals can live shift and water supplies are diminished. In addition to creating new agricultural challenges, climate change can directly affect people's physical health. In urban areas, the warmer atmosphere creates an environment that traps and increases the amount of smog. This is because smog contains ozone particles, which increase rapidly at higher temperatures. Exposure to higher levels of smog can cause health problems such as asthma, heart disease, and lung cancer. While the rapid rate of climate change is caused by humans, humans are also the ones who can combat it. If we work to replace fossil fuels with renewable energy sources like solar and wind, which don't produce greenhouse gas emissions, we might still be able to prevent some of the worst effects of climate change. He's one of the largest felines in the world, and fearsome. But his keeper's unfazed. That's because the Amor tiger is a vulnerable beast. Only around 500 are left in the wild in Russia. Every cub born at the Sichova Animal Sanctuary outside of Moscow takes the species a step back from extinction. The role of this sanctuary is vitally important for the future preservation of the species. They call her Matryoshka, which means Russian doll, because she keeps producing babies. But both the adults who came here as orphans and their progeny will likely spend their lives behind bars. Few cats raised in captivity have ever successfully returned to the wild. In the Amur region in Russia's Far East, tigers are still threatened by logging and loss of prey. They have to compete with hunters for food. Chinese demand across the border for tiger parts remains strong. Uh, they believe that it's a fantastic aphrodisiac. 
they pay fantastic money by price about $15,000. For villager, it's fantastic money. Thanks to conservation work, the wild tiger population is stable, but limited territory means it's unlikely to increase further. For those who work with these animals, that is not a positive outlook. I have uh, three children, and the smallest and youngest is the daughter. She's only three years old. And I'm afraid that in very, very future, she will see fewer animals in the nature than we saw before. There is a program that may one day relocate wild ammo tigers to a new reserve in Kazakhstan, but it's still many years from realization. Until then, the future of the tiger is by no means secure. So just with one or two people, don't, this doesn't have to turn into big groups, but with one or two people, just grapple with the question after watching those two videos, what do prayer and church have to do with the extinction of Siberian tigers and climate change? They have everything to do with it. And what I want to, want to do now is give you five reasons why I think this is important and why for Christians we should be taking this seriously. So let's look at these five uh, together. The first one, creation is the foundation of the biblical story. Even if you're not a biblical scholar or you haven't read a lot of the Bible, most people, even good secularists, will know that Genesis 1 and 1 makes a very clear and very simple, and yet I suggest a very profound statement, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so at the beginning of all that of what we know, God was there as the one who created. So whatever we want to say about the environment, whatever we want to say about Siberian tigers, whatever we want to say about climate change, one of the places we start is we start with the, the foundation of the biblical story. I was speaking in an event uh, a while ago, and I was talking about some of the areas I'm interested in, and I went up and talked to this guy after, and right out of the blue, I didn't even know his name, he just said, I just need to tell you, I'm not a tree hugger. And it was interesting that here's this Christian man who hears about environmental issues and his association is a colloquialism, tree hugger, and he identifies as not a tree hugger and yet identifies as somebody who follows Jesus, who created the trees. And maybe hugging them isn't so bad an idea after all as an expression not of a worship of the tree but a worship of the one who made the tree. And so the recognition that the whole arc of the Christian faith does not start with sin. Here's where we evangelicals, it seems to me, have some trouble. We tend to say, what is the problem? The problem is sin. What is the answer? The answer is redemption. And what's the future of all that? Consummation. So we go sin and redemption and consummation. But the Bible doesn't tell the story that way. The Bible doesn't start with what is wrong. The Bible starts with the ideal. The Bible starts with God's will. The Bible starts with God's direction, the trajectory that God is putting in place. And that trajectory is one that starts with creation, then sin, then redemption, then consummation. And so if we are going to be accurate readers of the Bible, we need to start where the Bible starts. And if we're going to grapple with things like the extinction of the Siberian tiger, we don't start with pejorative terms on, oh, you must be voting for Elizabeth May or you must be pro-Trump or anti-Trump. Like, we don't start there. We start with the fact that the biblical story starts with God's creation. God is the creator, and that's the biblical arc. And so we need to start our Christian faith 
where the Bible starts, the Christian story. That's how we need to come at this issue first and foremost. It's a very simple thing, and yet I suggest to you deeply profound. God is the creator, and so all issues around the environment start with an understanding of God. Secondly, matter that God created is good. There's an interesting little phrase in Genesis. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, verse 9, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, verse 31. There's repetition in the first chapter of Genesis, and it shows that when God created, he saw that it was good. Good. So whatever you think of the environment, whatever you think of Andrew Scheer and his environmental policies, whatever you think of Justin Trudeau and his environmental policies, whatever you think of Donald Trump and his quote-unquote environmental policies, whatever you think of that, that's not where we start. We start with the fact that God looked at his creation and declared it good. Good. Uh, those of you who study a little philosophy, I think we could well say that God's creation is good, it's true, and it's beautiful. It comes from God. It's an expression of his character. And because it comes from God, and it's been designated as God, we need to recognize that being spiritual in creation was not people sitting around meditating or praying or reading their Bible, right? We evangelicals have kind of slipped into that mindset that being spiritual means, well, you're sitting there with a Bible and you're, you're praying and you're meditating, and that's what it means to be spiritual. But the humans who were there at creation participated in enjoying the matter that God created. That's how they expressed their spirituality. And so we have slipped, and we evangelicals have slipped majorly into this area, it seems to me, that there are many Christians walking around who think reading the Bible and evangelizing, that's spiritual, but being in the forest and being on the water or looking after soil or paying attention to the extinction of Siberian tigers, that's not really spiritual. That's matter. That's seen. That's visible. No, God created matter and it was good. And so if you know church history, you'll know that one of, the, one of the tensions in the early part of the church was the tension with Gnosticism. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S-M, Gnosticism. And what was Gnosticism? Gnostics believed that matter was unspiritual. Things like trees and soil and Siberian tigers and oceans and climate, these were unspiritual and potentially, they argued, bad. That matter was bad. That things we see are bad and things we don't see are good because they're spiritual. And if you know the book of Colossians, you know one of the things that Paul did in writing to the book of uh, the church at Colossae, one of the things that he did there was he wrote to them about how Jesus came in bodily form to express who God was. So Jesus was born and was tangible and sensual and was deeply spiritual. And the Gnostics at that time said, cannot be. You can't express God, God who is spirit, in a physical body. You can't do that. And the Gnostics were tearing their hair out. What we need as Christians, it seems to me, is we need to resist Christian Gnosticism. This would be a whole series for us here. There's a lot of Christian Gnosticism going on right now where spiritual is up here and everything that relates to matter doesn't matter. But for Christians, we need to recognize that Gnosticism is a problem when it comes to the Christian faith because matter matters. Number three, 
Non-human creation was created by God. Now, we used to have uh, four creatures in our house before we moved to Toronto. Uh, We had Winston Churchill, the cat. Uh, We had Thunderstorm, the golden retriever. And we had two goldfish, Simon and Garfunkel. Okay? Um, For obvious reasons, them being the best singers, the best musicians, uh, best lyrics, you know, uh, patron saints. I mean, that's obvious. And those of you who don't know who Simon and Garfunkel is, God bless you. Um, You need help. So... Bev had a good relationship with Winston Churchill. I had a good relationship with Thunder. I had a very good relationship with Simon and Garfunkel, uh, the goldfish, although they are a little personality-less, with all due respects. Um, So where did they come from? I've heard Christians say, you know, I feel kind of guilty because I really love my cat, and when she died, I had to take two days off work. Like, that seems really unspiritual. I really loved my dog. I remember when we, le- when we left Thunder behind, I cried because we left the Golden Retriever behind. I cried. We went and visited him three, de- three years after we moved out here, and he just went bananas when he saw me. And I went to the car to leave, and he came up to the car, and he wanted to get in the rental car to come with us. And it's like, no, Thunder, you live here now. You're not, like, you're not coming with us. You're staying here. He was brokenhearted. I was brokenhearted. He wasn't shedding tears, but, you know, Golden Retriever's face, they look brokenhearted all the time. Like, they're so amazing, you know? So where do they come from? Where did Thunder come from? Where did Winston Churchill come from? Where did Simon and Garfunkel come from? Listen to these words from Genesis 1, 20 and 24. God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing which, uh, with which the water teems and that moves about in it, and every winged bird. God made the wild animals. God made the livestock. God made all the creatures that move along the ground. And what did God decide? God said it was good. So let's stop the guilt about our close relationship with our cat. Let's stop the guilt about our close relationship with our dog. Let's not, as Christians, somehow allocate the non-human aspects of creation to some other sphere. Your puppy was created by God. Your cat was created by God. Siberian tigers are created by God. So to not care about Siberian tigers is to make a statement about their creator. They were created by God. And while we need to see humans, and I want to use the word culmination here, this is a whole complex biblical theological issue, but while we want to see humans as the culmination of creation, it seems to me that does not mean we ignore everything else that God has created. God created Thunder, God created Winston Churchill, God created Simon and Garfunkel. I need to take them seriously as part of God's creation. Number four, as image bearers of God... Humans are responsible to care for creation. Now, again, we're going over massive ground briefly today. What's the similarity between me and Thunder, the golden retriever? We're both created by God. I can stand, Thunder's gone now, but I can stand beside Thunder, the golden retriever, and we can both announce that we are both created by God. And in that sense, we have the same origin. I act like a dog sometimes, And thunder acts like a human sometimes. But we're both created by God. And that is just fundamentally true. However, what's the difference between me and thunder? The difference is that we, as human beings, are created in the image of God. 
And so when God conceptualizes the garden as his temple, as the place where he lives, God doesn't come in and live there in that temple. What he does is he creates humans and he puts them there and he says, I'm creating you in my image. And notice what God does. This is a very interesting part of creation. What God does is he doesn't say, like, I'm going to create things and then I'm going to run it all and you don't have to do anything. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm creating you in my image. So we are image bearers, all of us, of God. And because we're image bearers, what does that mean? Well, look at the passage. It's up on the screen behind you. Genesis 1, 26, 28, and Genesis 2, 15. Let us make humans in our image, in our likeness. Why? So that they may rule over, fill the earth, subdue it, work it, take care of it. It's fascinating to read Genesis 1 and 2, looking at all the verbs. And so rather than saying, well, I'm not into the green party, well, I'm into this, I'm into that, I think we should, I'm not into the pipeline, I'm into the pipeline, I'm, like, we don't start there. We start with the fact that we who are created in the image of God have a responsibility to do a number of things. And look at the, look at the verbs. We have to rule and subdue the earth. And one of the ways, these are complex uh, Hebrew verbs, but one of the ways to understand this is to use the word management. We need to manage the earth. And we need to manage it well with peace and with justice and with righteousness. We need to work the earth. We need to serve the earth. We need to care for the earth. We need to guard the earth. And as Christians, and this may seem like a picky point for you, but I hope it's not. As Christians, we are not environmentalists. We are people who care for creation. You see the difference? Like to say you're an environmentalist is to disconnect the environment from its creator. But to say you're a person who believes that it's a biblical responsibility, it's not like, well, which way do you lean in your voting pattern? Or are you left or right of center on the political spectrum? Or do you like Trump or do you not like Trump? That's not the criteria. God says, I have created you in my image for a purpose. And the purpose is related to creation. And isn't it interesting for those of us who are evangelical and are quite concerned about the lost and quite concerned about people who aren't Christians and quite concerned about other religions and all the things we're quite concerned about, isn't it interesting that God said, one of the primary responsibilities you have is to care for creation care for creation, to manage it, and to manage it well. So it seems to me we need to work on God's behalf. That's really what being an image maker means. We need to work on God's behalf in his temple, the earth. It's a trust he's given us to steward. And number five, and lastly, creation care is infused with hope and the promise of redemption. If you are involved in the environmental movement or understand the environmental movement, you will know that you could pretty well divide the environmental movement into two emotional tones. The one emotional tone is, oh my goodness, this is terrible, this is awful, we need to do, we need to stop everything we're doing because the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket and this is awful. There's that tone, it's fearful, there's no hope. It's just an awful thing. There's a Christian expression of that. Well, hey, it's all going to go away anyway, so who cares? I always can feel God wincing when Christians say that. I don't know if you've ever thought about God wincing, but God going, wait a second, like I said, care for this. And you're saying, hey, it doesn't matter. No, no. So there's that expression, which is a hopeless expression, but then there's the other expression. My friends and colleagues at Arasha, the Christian conservation group here in Vancouver and throughout the country, one of their great tenets that I love about Arasha is they bring hope 
into the creation discussion. It's not a fearful, frightened, hopeless enterprise. It's something that's hopeful. And why is it hopeful? Because there's a promise of redemption. And I don't know if you've read these verses very clearly, but let me just go through them uh, briefly with you from Romans 8, 19, and 21, and then from Colossians 1 and 20. Listen to Romans 8. For the creation waits in eager expectation. Now, you don't need to be a Greek scholar or a biblical scholar or have gone to region college or carry or whatever in order to figure that out. It's very simple. The creation waits in eager expectation. And what's the creation waiting for? All aspects of the creation. And notice here what Paul's doing is in many ways he's talking about the non-human part of creation waiting. And what is it waiting for? Waiting for the children of God to be revealed. Waiting for the end time. Waiting for the expression of God's cosmos coming to a place where Jesus is finally Lord over all and over everything. The creation's waiting for that. Why? Because the creation was subjected to frustration. Remember when sin came? God brought consequences, not just to humans, but consequences to creation. And so there's a brokenness in creation. There's a frustration in creation. And creation didn't choose that. Look at Paul's language. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, Creation didn't decide that, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and that was God. God brought consequences to his good creation because of the sin of humanity. But look look at the rest of the passage. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and bought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And see what Paul's doing here. He's talking about creation, not just a very narrow view, just of humans, but he's actually talking about all of creation, and all of creation will be liberated. And so for us to say, well, I'm not really into the environmental stuff, I don't really need to work on that, that's similar to saying, well, I don't really care about people either, because God will look after that anyway. Because of hope and redemption, we work. And so when Paul uh, argues this way, it's not a surprise then. When you come to Colossians 1 and 20, what does he say about Jesus? What does Jesus do? Through Jesus, to reconcile to himself, reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. Sometimes in Christian thinking... And in Christian singing, many of our hymns, many of our choruses are oriented this way. We think of hope and redemption with regards to people. But if you're following this biblical run-through we're doing today, Siberian tigers have hope and redemption. Siberian tigers have hope and redemption. Well, then you get into the Christian fatalism, right? Well, if there's hope and redemption for Siberian tigers, then what do we have to do with it? God will look after it. Well, how about, you know, Kim was talking about caring for people who are dying. Why do we need to care for people who are dying? God will look after it. Why do we we need to worry about evangelism and caring for people and discipling? God will look after it. See, environmental work, creation care work, is kingdom work. It's kingdom work in the sense that God has given us that responsibility and it's our responsibility to carry that out with that back to the future perspective. A recognition that because all things are coming to be, God has put us on this earth to participate with him in making that happen. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is my responsibility and your responsibility. It sounds really spiritual to say it's not my responsibility, it's God's, but actually to say that is a denial of the creation. 
So we need, it seems to me, to be people who approach creation care with hope because of the promise of redemption. So let me give you a little practical illustration of this as I close. Uh, I did a lathe course uh, a while ago, and I made this little jar. It's hard to see at the back, but it's a little jar, got a piece of wood, shaped it. If any of you have done lathe work will know this was the hardest part, getting a lid that went on and fit and would come off. It's hard to do, and a different color piece of wood like that. So I made this. Now, theologically, those of you who studied theology will know the difference between this creation that I created and the creation God created is I created out of something and God created out of nothing. That's the difference between those of you who are artists and God. Both create, I created out of something, a piece of wood, God created out of nothing. That's what makes me human and created and God creator and divine. Imagine for a moment I came to you after the service, I won't do this so don't avoid me, but imagine I came to you after the service and I said, you know, I created this and what I'd like you to do from now until the day you die is I'd like you to manage this for me. I'd like you to look after this for me. I'd like you to care for this for me. And then when you die, pass it on to somebody else who's alive so they can care for it. How do you think you would treat this? The next time you do French fries, would you take the lid off and pour all the grease from the French fries into into this and say, we're going to use this to store grease? Intuitively, intuitively, you know that would not be appropriate. Those of you who know me well and like me, okay, that's not everybody in the room, either know me well or like me, but those of you who know me well and like me, if I gave this to you, you'd say, wow, like Rod gave me this, I really want to take care of this, I want to manage this well, I want to look after this well, because th- this, like Rod created this, and I, I want to look after this really, really well, because you respect me, and you like me, and you have affection for me, and because of that, you're going to look after this really, really well, you're not going to abuse it. You're not going to negate it. You're not going to put it on the ground. You're not going to use it as a doorstop. You're not going to use it for purposes it wasn't intended. You're not going to look. I'm not going to come back six months later and think, what have you done to this thing that I've given you? I'm going to come back before you die, and I'm going to say, you managed that well. You looked after that well for me. It seems to me, friends, there are way too many Christians putting French fry grease in my little container. Amen.